The Guardian. Hello, this is The Business. I'm Adit Chakraborty. And on this week's podcast, a technicality prevents the British Airways strikes from going ahead. We're very disappointed by the decision of the judge to rule unlawful, uh, a democratic, lawful ballot as we regard uh, the decision taken by over 90% of our members to take strike action in the face of an attack by their employer. But what does the ruling say about democracy and the power of the unions? The unions here have unique privileges to go out on strike, to induce people to breach their contracts and to cause huge losses to businesses and to individuals. At last, we have a new government which says it's serious about cutting the national overdraft. Deficit reduction and continuing to ensure economic recovery is the most urgent issue facing Britain. We understand that and we need to get moving. But how well did Coalition's two top deficit busters, Boy George Osborne and St Vince Cable, really get on. The Tories presided over two big recessions in office. They wasted most of the North Sea oil revenue. They sold off the family silver on the cheap. Now they want to have another turn to get their noses in the trough and reward their rich backers. This is a business from The Guardian. Welcome. And in the studio today, we have our very own economic coalition. Jill Trainer, The Guardian's banking supremo. Business overlord, Dan Roberts and jobbing economics editor Larry Elliott. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. First up, Britain's largest trade union claims it's a victim of a landmark attack on the right to strike. The High Court has blocked 20 days of walkouts by British Airways cabin crew. The strikes would have affected 1.8 million passengers and cost BA nearly £140 million. Let's hear from the two sides. In a moment, Tony Woodley from the Unite Union but first, here's Willie Walsh, Chief Executive of British Airways. We're looking now to reinstate flights as soon as we possibly can. It is a complex process, uh, so we do hope to get back to normal operations as quickly as possible. The implications here today of a judge making this ruling on the most flimsy of technicalities is a serious question mark on the democracy of Britain today. It's the third injunction against a major transport strike in six months. So it was ruled illegal on a technicality. Here's industrial relations lawyer Mark Merrion. The unions here have unique privileges to go out on strike, to induce people to breach their contracts and to cause huge losses to businesses and to individuals. And that privilege comes at a price. It comes with a responsibility. And the responsibility is to get the balloting and the notification provisions right. Dan Roberts, let's begin with you. Uh, how much sympathy do you have for Unite over this? Um, a lot more than I normally do, actually. Um, I have a, two declarations of interest. One, I was foolish enough to try and take my family to a wedding in Greece, in the middle of the ash cloud, in the middle of the British Airways strike. So I have personal relief. Um, I also thought the strike itself was misguided. I have sympathy for them, um, but I think um, it was ultimately a self-defeating strike. But having said all of that, I think far more misguided and an utter outrage, frankly, is the way the courts have, have, have responded to this. Um, I think it's utterly disproportionate to, to throw out um, the clear will of the Unite membership on, on, on this, not only a technicality, but a very, very severe reading of a technicality. Um, and I think it calls into question the independence of the judici- judiciary. I think it calls into question basic democratic rights. And, and I think does leave us with the conclusion that um, actually 
the the way the labor laws have been drafted and are now being interpreted by the courts effectively makes it impossible for any strike to go ahead jill trainer do you not have the worst lawyers in the world or what this is a second injunction on a, te- on a te- major technicality it's extraordinary isn't it i the, 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 i think united now had three attempts at strike banned by courts it does make you wonder who's looking at the processes inside unite um, and whether or not they think that these little provisions that are buried in all these documentations really don't need to be taken any notice of but you would have thought that they'd have learnt from previous occasions i mean I, they're arguing what it's 11 that, that there were just 11 spoilt ballots maybe that didn't seem like very many and was regarded as inconsequential in the schemes of everybody else who'd voted but they were posted. Um, uh, they were posted on the Unite website. They were posted on the union notice boards, and they were utterly trivial in the context of um, of, of of the vote. Yeah. I mean, and BA didn't even notice this either. This don't forget. This was a ballot that has already had one strike, and BA's had lawyers calling all over it for several months, um, looking for these sorts of things. Couldn't even find this one. So, I mean, this is really long grass stuff. This is buried deep. Um, and not only has the court um, accepted that it's material, but it's, it's, it blocked the whole strike as a result. This, I think, is the scandal, is the disproportionality of it. It's fine if it's a technicality, but all sorts of technicalities get taken. But the spirit of the law is there to prevent um, firebrands from dragging an unwilling membership into a strike. And that, no one with a straight face can argue this was at risk in this certainly case. Looks, I- certainly it looks less irregular than some of the... Uh, cases we heard about during the election campaign. I mean, sort of postal postal ballot rigging, you know, people not being able to able to vote when they turned up at polling stations. I mean, no one said that the entire general election is illegitimate. I mean, it just seems seems to me to be quite. Can you imagine quite, if they turfed David Cameron out of yeah, ten quite, because quite, seven sport ballots exactly. weren't notified? I mean, it's kind in the of it, quite extraordinary yeah. the, the, yeah. the the severity of this judgment. I think, and there has to be a right for for people to withdraw their labour. And I think the union have behaved reasonably well. Maybe they haven't got such highly paid lawyers as BI. I doubt whether they have. Um, and uh, you know, but that, that, that's not the point here. I mean, the other the other point, I suppose, is that who's really going to want to go and sit on a BA plane for the next yeah. few months with a very very unhappy cabin crew? I mean, you're not exactly going to get great great service. From well, this is. <laughs> This is the problem BA's got. I mean, who on earth is going to book a flight with BA in the coming months? Because you're just going to presumably be thinking, you know, you were trying to go to Greece, you had volcanic ash and a potential strike to deal with. You know, it just doesn't bode well for airlines. You know, they're talking, what, losing 138, 140 Mm. million pounds from all of this. They must be terrified the cost is going up. And no wonder they've probably hired the most expensive lawyers they can possibly find to pick holes in these... Uh, you know, in, in, in these agreements, that, but, but, but the, that's, the, in these strike ballots. Isn't that the problem, though, Jill, is that what they're doing is they're picking holes in these agreements and then having to go back to the courts time and time again, whereas actually in the end it might be less costly just to have reach an agreement with the union. I, I'm not here to play devil's advocate at all, but there was a very interesting interview one day this week on the Today programme when they had a shareholder on talking about his views on all sorts of issues. Uh, he's, he's a guy from Standard Life, and he was actually very supportive of Willie Walsh and BA for precisely the fact that he's willing to take on the unions and fight them in this way. So Willie Walsh is really doing what his owners want him to do, which, is, which he, is fight the union. But ultimately he wants... Uh, the, the, the main thing that Walsh wants out of this dispute is to break the power of the union mm. in, 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 in British Airways. And 
I say that in an utterly neutral way. Um, it may or may not be the best thing for him to do, but that's what this is what this is about. This is why he's willing to risk so much disruption, so much um, uh, uh, anger for, from from his passengers. It, it, the stakes are huge on both sides. This is this is make or break for BA as well as make or break for Bassa, and that's why this this court judgment is actually not very helpful to anybody really because it doesn't get anywhere closer yeah, no to a resolution. It just yeah. delays the whole thing and makes everybody more angry. And and it must do more long term damage to BA, mustn't it? because the longer the uncertainty goes on the more you're not going to book a flight Larry last question to you um, as we were watching the pictures on Monday of Willie Walsh and Tony Woodley trooping in and out of Department of Transport and going to see Philip Hammond who's now the Transport Secretary I did think about the politics of this it was always a bit difficult for Labour to go too hard on Unite because it was seen as attacking one of their major funders what do you think the talk, having a new government will do will, will change the shape of this strike well, if I was Willie Walsh, I'd feel more embold- I'd feel emboldened. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was an ex- there was an extent to which Gordon Brown did try to m- moderate the um, you know, both the rail strike and and the, and the BA strike. Um, you know, he didn't want them overshadowing the, the pre-election period. I think the Tories, five years ahead of them, quite a strong coalition government. I think they'll want to show that they mean business with the unions. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's injunct that discussion there. Leave your thoughts on the blog at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. Now, let's move on to the £6 billion question. Britain's new Chancellor has been getting down to some serious business. At the start of his first full week in office, George Osborne has begun outlining his plans on tackling the £163 billion deficit and he's promised to find £6 billion of that by next Monday. I am the first Chancellor to remove the temptation to fiddle the figures by giving up control of the economic and fiscal forecast. We need to fix the budget to fit the figures, not fix the figures to fit the budget. To do this, I am today establishing a new independent office for budget responsibility. For the first time, we will have a truly independent assessment of the state of the nation's finances. The coalition have also agreed that given the state of the public finances, the great majority of the six billion of savings from other departments will be used to reduce the deficit. Some proportion will be used to support jobs in a targeted and effective way, as set out in the coalition agreement, for example, through cancelling of some backdated demands for business rates. It is the clear view of the Treasury and the Governor of the Bank of England that these are the necessary actions to ensure economic stability and secure the recovery. Larry Elliott, let's begin with you. If Osborne's going to find six billion quid so quickly, he must have a bloody big sofa. I think it's kind of ironic, really, that he's going to target quangos as the way of finding this six billion. Yet the first thing he does is to set up a quango. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, I don't think I think he'll probably be able to find six billion pounds relatively easy. It's you know, it's zero point three percent of GDP. If you really wanted to find six billion, you can find it. I'm sure. I mean, I think there are two two broader points. One is that all we're hearing from the government is deficit reduction. You're hearing nothing about the other side of the coin, which is going to have to be growth. Because if you just cut the deficit and kill the economy, um, then all you're doing is keeping the debt-to-GDP ratio exactly the same. So they're, they're, I think they've got a problem here, which is that if they, if, they, if they deprive the public sector of money and there's no private sector response, then you just dig yourself a big, an even big, bigger hole. So that's the first thing that, that worries me about, about this strategy. The second thing, you hear quite a lot of people, David Laws, for example, talking about frontline 
frontline services. We were going to protect frontline services. Now, that seems to me to be quite a slippery concept. I mean, laws worked in a bank. The bank doesn't rely just on the people out out front trading. It relies on a whole bunch of people, settlements people, back office people. If you apply that to the NHS, for example, then the fact you've got an administrator or an IT program means that a doctor or a nurse actually spared the the, the hard work of doing all the paperwork and means they can rely on, they can do, do, do patient care. So getting rid of back office staff can affect frontline staff so I, I, I'm kind of worried by this by this sort of soundbite approach and, and by the fact that it's very very one-sided at the moment this government, the government approach which is all about all about deficit reduction which I think could quite seriously damage consumer confidence uh, and, and we could we, we, we could as a result find ourselves in a bigger fiscal hole 18 months down the road. Dan as a manager you must do an awful lot of handovers to various members of staff and to other managers. Can you explain to me what was going through Liam Byrne's head when he leaves a note behind for David Law saying we've got no money left? I think he was being, trying to be a clever dick and he, he ended up just being a dick. <laughs> I mean, I think um, uh, it was one of the most ill-judged jokes in, in recent political history and I think it'll come back to haunt Labour for a long time. Um, uh, ultimately, I mean, the, 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 the argument from the right has always been that all Labour governments end in a financial crisis. And um, uh, this one has. Um, I think it's unfair to pin the blame on that uh, uh, entirely on, on Labour. But um, notes like this really don't help. And um, I think it was a disastrous thing to do. That They asked readers of SIF, you know, the Guardian yeah. website, if they thought it was hilarious or unfunny, that letter. And they disagree with Dan. They thought it was hilarious. 54% of the 3,500 people or so who replied thought it was actually hilarious. I've got to confess, I kind of do find it hilarious myself, but maybe that's what's life all about, slightly different opinions. It, it was funny. Of it. it was just fantastically ill-judged. It, it, it I mean, probably is you know, We can all say funny things, but it doesn't make them sensible. I, I don't know. I thought Reginald Maudling's thing about... Sorry to leave it in such a mess, cock. Cock. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he probably remembered, but that was probably meant to be an echo of that. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, but, I mean, but that, that that's what I mean about him trying to be clever. It, that's I mean, what this is just really to. crap. This is like someone in the accountant hand you know. Well, I think the suspicion is not only is there no money, but Labour's actually left a poison pill for the for the new government, and it's been spending like crazy in the last few months. That's why an awful lot, or every every um, piece of public spending since January the first is now going to be looked at again by the Treasury and by government departments to see whether it's value for money. And I mean, that, that seems to me to be a perfectly sensible you, thing. You think that criticism is right that they were spending like sailors? Well, that's the that, that's time. that's the that's what we're hearing. From, from, from Tories, <laughs> I mean, from people inside government, not just the Tories, but also officials, that um, that there was sort of a bit of a spending spree going on, a bit of a scorched earth policy going on. That's certainly the suspicion of the new government, um, and the note that Liam Byrne left behind doesn't do very much to allay those fears, does it? Okay, so when do we begin? Six billion quid, you're saying, is neither here nor there. It's a rounding error in, in economics. But- I don't, yeah, I think six billion pounds out of a one point five trillion pound economy thereabouts. You're talking about zero point three percent of GDP. One percent of public spending. One percent of public. It's probably no. a bit more of of, of actual department, a bit more of departmental spending. But it's it's you know, it, if you went round a private sector company, I think the Tories are right in that. If you went to any private sector company, said, so "Can you take one percent of costs out of your business in a year?" They would do it without really blinking. Or any household, you went to a household and said, "Can you actually take one percent off, off your household budget?" Yeah, you'd buy own brand yogurts rather than Marks and Spencers. Up, you know, whatever. You know, Dutchy Originals would go would go the way of all things, and, and you'd take the take the Tesco's own brand sausages. I mean, you know, it's sort of. I, I don't think 
individual families find it that difficult to get their head around the idea of cutting one percent off the off the off public spending this year okay so when do we notice the age of austerity then well i think next year i think 2011 is when you're going to get it because uh, this is just a down payment the six billion is just a down payment on some very big public spending cuts in over the next three years which should be announced in the comprehensive spending review and if you're george osborne and david laws thinking about political timing you're going to front end load that pain. So if it's a three-year programme, I'd imagine you'd want to get 50% of the spending cuts out of the way in year one, 25% in year two, and 25% in year three, or some combination of that sort, which means that 2011 is going to be an absolutely gruesome year for the public sector. Probably, I'd have thought, take maybe one and a half, two percent 2% of GDP out of the economy. And if there's no private sector recovery happening elsewhere and there's no pickup in exports or investment and if consumer spending remains weak that means that the economy is not going to grow anything like the three percent that the treasury is factoring into its forecast i mean you know one percent would be more likely you know so you get one percent growth this year maybe one percent growth again next year which would you know while not technically a double dip recession would be pretty damn near it thank you professor sunshine um <laughs> Can we <all> go <laughs> yeah. dan just just one final thing we had a, a budget uh, in April, we're going to have a, a mini emergency budget on Monday with six billion quid of Don't forget cuts. The PPR. Yeah, uh, we've got uh, an emergency budget in June twenty second. Then we'll have a PBR in autumn, and then we'll have a comprehensive spending review. And that, I mean, is there any point in having all of these announcements stacked up one after another? Um, w- well, from our perspective, it's a nightmare because it makes for lots of very long days. But I, I do think there is a need to. Uh, get on with it and send some reassuring messages fast. I mean, uh, uh, throughout most of the last nine, twelve months, I've agreed with Larry that I think that the the the, the risk of 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 tightening fiscal policy too rapidly was greater than the than than the risk of um, uh, uh, of letting the deficit um, spook the markets. But I think events of the last two or three weeks have shown us that that balance is getting finer and finer by the by 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 the week. Um, and the risk of a credit downgrade for Britain, um, I think, has never looked stronger. I think we're, we're out of line with, say, Spain, and they don't need much excuse. Well, as Liam Byrne said to Alistair Darling, let's leave that there. You can find out more about Britain's great deficit diet at guardian.co.uk forward slash economics. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Let's take a closer look now at the two men at the top of economic policy, for now at least. Conservative George Osborne and Liberal Democrat Vince Cable were at each other's throats just a couple of weeks ago. They now have to work together like it never happened. Just take the chance of debate. They were hardly fans of each other there. For the Conservatives, George Osborne. For the Liberal Democrats, Vince Cable. We need to deal with our debts and people at home and here know that the sooner you deal with the debt problem, the better. We need to cut wasteful government spending instead of increasing national insurance taxes on hard-working people. And we've got to start with this huge government deficit. We can't avoid it. There are going to have to be cuts. We've got to create a new kind of economy, much less dependent on a few prima donnas in financial speculation. And the way to do that is to have a tax system that is fundamentally changed, that lifts three and a half million people out of income tax, cuts tax for the average taxpayer by £700 a year, and in which that is fully paid for by the very wealthy paying their fair share. Well, I've been Shadow Chancellor for five years, so I've been watching people do the job. 
And frankly, that is a big choice between us and the government. Charles, last, last week you went round denouncing these government's supposed That's efficiency right. savings as complete fiction, which frankly a lot of them are. And you're now using, <laughs> and you're now using, you're now using these, and you're now using these fictional savings to finance your tax cut. That is utterly incredible. Where is it? You're not even that, specifying the government departments where it's going to happen. Vince. I have got the support of people like Peter Gershon and Martin Reed, two people you won't have heard of, but two people that Alistair himself hired into government. So the tax rises on the many are the ones that I will avoid. I'm afraid I can't avoid the tax rises on the few. Vince Cable. Well, we've got to be careful about not having ludicrously uncompetitive tax rates, that's for sure. But I think we, we also need to take with a pinch of salt these threats from the super-rich to flee the country. I mean, this country was held to ransom in the 80s by Scargill and people like that. And now we've got these pinstripe Scargills threatening to blackmail the country in exactly the same way. I thought your top tax priority was taking double millionaires out of inheritance tax. I mean, what's that going to do to create greater equality? As you, as you well know, that is not my top tax priority. My well, it top, is a priority. My, to, my top tax priority is to take people earning over £20,000 out of Alistair Darling's national insurance tax. I think we get the picture. Jill Trainer. um... There's an element of politics which is always just about knockabout, but there are serious policy differences between Vince and George, aren't there? Well, there certainly are. I mean, if you if you think about the banking stuff that I probably know a bit more about than some of the wonderful tax things that Larry and Dan know about, is that clearly Vince Cable has been adamant pretty much from the start of the banking crisis that you should split the banking system up. You should take Barclays Capital, the investment banking arm of Barclays, and shove it somewhere else, get rid of it, and have the high street bank safe. Same for RBS. Osborne's position on this is much harder to understand. I mean, he has talked about splitting them up and then seems to step back a bit from it. Osborne's also said very clearly, we really must get rid of the Financial Services Authority. At least this was his pre-election uh, big boost. And of course, once they get elected, he's succumbed to Vince Cable, who said, why get rid of the FSA? Um, so, which is, which is why it's very interesting that they're setting up this committee to look at splitting up the banks, which throws it into the long grass for a year leaves lots of uncertainty over the stock market and I guess allows uh, uh, George Osborne and Vince Cable an opportunity to decide which one, which one of them is going to get their way. Larry, you were granted an interview with St Vince. With Jill, yeah, both of us, yeah. Last week. Yep. How unhappy was he? Uh, well, he never exactly looks like the happiest man in the world, does he? I mean, he always looks kind of faintly um, Eeyore-ish. But, I mean, he was actually all right, I thought. I mean, if you think about it, He's ended up at business. I'm sure he would have rather been the Chancellor, but that was never never a feasible option. It's not going to, the Liberal Democrats weren't going to get the Chancellor as one as part of the coalition deal. I think it's probably a better fit at the Treasury having Osborne and David Laws, who's quite a dry Liberal Democrat on the right of the, on the right of the party and, and former investment banker. I thought he was he was much more um, congenial in terms of getting on with with, with George. Um, and I think the, you know. Vince has been left to get on with the growth part of the equation. Um, how successful he will be in that uh, remains to be seen. I think that, that that's the that's the plan that George does the deficit cutting and the and the big macro fiscal policy stuff, and Vince gets on with trying to grow the economy, the whole sort of digital green business agenda. Um, and part of that, part of the di the difference between them is going to be, as Jill says, what to do about the banks because they both have an interest, so they both have a dog in that fight. Um, and I think that if there is going to be a flashpoint, that's going to be it. It's interesting as well, though, because obviously Cable's only going to be able to grow the economy if 
HMT in the in the shape of George Osborne, give him some money to play with. Mm. So in these whole sort of talking about deficit cuts and such like, no doubt there will also be, as all those people are going to be jumping on David Law's demanding for money, uh, clearly Vince Cable is going to be one of those people looking for money for biz. Dan, that's an excellent point, isn't it? Because the fir- one of the first announcements we've got from the Treasury is how it's cancelling a lot of soft loans that Peter Manson, when he was business secretary, gave out to a bunch of manufacturers. So there's going to be a constant tension between the two. There is, and you were just, before we started this podcast, putting me right on one of my assumptions that uh, Cable would be very interventionist and Heseltinian in his view of, 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 of the business department and want to be picking winners and things. And actually, as you were r- r- pointing out, it... it, it it's not necessarily his instincts. He's not. A, he he didn't want to have. He famously said the DTI was a waste of time because he doesn't um, believe in picking winners in that way. So it may be that he wants to support um, business, not actually by throwing money at it, um, but perhaps by bringing finance down to size. Perhaps the rebalancing is not so much um, trying to throw money at industry, but actually trying to sort of reform the tax system um, to to get rid of some of the distortions. I think, for example, the, their plans for capital gains tax are very uh, sensible for that reason, that that, um, that it removes some of the distortions that have caused all sorts of private equity buyouts. And and, um, and if, he can, if he can try and rebalance in that way, it might not be quite so expensive. Does anyone here seriously think that Vince Cable is going to be business secretary in a year's time? Why not? Do you not think he would just walk? No, I don't think he'd walk. I mean, it go, it, first of all, we know that he didn't want to go into coalition with Lib Dems. We know that he was phoning up Gordon Brown. We know that have been chums for a long time. We know that he sees himself as a classic social democrat. We know that he's got a huge amount of contempt for George Osborne, which goes beyond sort of normal sort of jousting. I don't see what there... And, and now he's been given a, what he would t- tend to have seen as a non-department. Why would he stay? Well, he says it's not a non-department. He's changed his mind. I mean, it's quite a big department. It's quite a big job. I mean, if you if you well, it became a big job under Manson. It wasn't yeah. a big job under Hutton, was it? No, it was a big. I mean, it depends on the character of the Secretary of State. So, you know, if you go back in the last twenty years, the people who've really made something of it, Hesseltine and Mandelson, people who really want to make something of that department, um, have done. I mean, I think Vince will um, make of the job what, what what he wants. But I mean, I, I think I can see him holding on for. For some time, I don't see why. I mean, it, it, you know, it would be—it's would be, incredibly damaging, I think, to use business department and keep churning ministers through. It's been one of the problems with it over the, over many years that people have not really lasted very long there, and therefore nobody's been able to actually embed some of the long-term changes to business and industry that are needed if we are going to rebalance the economy. So the ones who have been there for a long time, Hesseltine, Mandelson, to a lesser extent, have actually started to do a bit of good, I think. Jill, do you think that we'll be talking about Business Secretary Vince Cable in a year's time? I suppose it depends whether or not you believe in the coalition and and how robust it is, because uh, from my understanding of the political situation, Cable's a central part of that coalition government working. So I know I've read a lot about some of the senior Liberal Dems who've had very big concerns about Labour, you know, um, Ashdown and... um, the other chap was near. I can't Kennedy. remember. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Uh, Charles Kennedy. Min Campbell. And, and Min Campbell. So, I mean, I assume that 
um, as long as Vince Cable feels he can make the coalition government work, he he will stay there. He's got a gun to their head. That is the. F- I, I, he feels I, like the I, I think man. that's the yeah. fault line running right down the middle of the government. But as a result, the power is on both sides. Um, and I think if Cable plays his hand carefully, he's actually got more power than than might first appear because he can bring that government down. He's got more power on the inside than he has on the outside because he can actually force concessions out. I mean, I think they have forced the Liberals have forced some concessions out of the out of the government on tax policy and over the last. Over the well, last. the Conservatives have adopted Lib Dem tax policy, but Lib Dems have had to adopt yeah. Conservative spending proposals or spending cuts. That's right. But having Cable as as a, probably the most left wing person of the, of all the people inside the inside the cabinet makes his position his position is stronger there than it is on the back benches moaning about the coalition i think i'll bet you a copy of the storm that he's not there in a year's time okay you're on <laughs> okay we'll leave that there for this week my thanks to jill trainer dan roberts and larry elliott don't forget to add your voice to our debate at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business this podcast was produced by andy duckworth i'm edit chakraborty thanks for listening For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.